everybody. Welcome to Salmorum Liber. That's Latin for studying the Psalms. And this is a series that I'm going to be going through in the book of Psalms, the whole book of Psalms. So starting in chapter one, and we'll go all the way through to chapter 150. And so these series of podcasts are available to you to listen to at your own leisure, to sit down and maybe use in your personal study time or reflection time or commuting time, whatever you would like. Hope you find them helpful, uh, useful, and uh, I hope that they help you not only grow in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also in your experience and worship of him. Thanks very much. Take care. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Psalm Warm Lieber. This is Psalm 6, part 2. You'll notice that in part one, we only made it to verse five. In this part two, I cover off a little bit of background with some insight into the word troubled and what does it mean? I think I come back to verse five and then we pick up in verse six and continue on to the rest of the psalm. Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time to download and listen. And I hope that uh, the Lord is using this to bring peace to your heart, bring a sense of joy to you, despite the circumstances that we are in, that you are in. And remember that he is still on his throne. Jesus is glorious, standing beside the Father, waiting for him to say to Jesus, now's the time for you to go back to earth and collect the elect. Thanks again for taking the time. And here we are on Psalm 6, part 2, picking up in verse 6 and finishing off to verse 10. Take care. And the magnification that happens in Sheol will be the actual lack of praise as sorrow and despair grow and grow and grow because the soul is in a place separated from God. And so that, that brings a, a deeper weight and heaviness to the, the statement that in Sheol, who will give you praise? The answer is no one. Because instead of giving praise, they will be growing in their sorrow and despair and their weeping and their gnashing of teeth towards God for the, for the very judgment that they deserve towards, they will do that towards God. I want to touch on this, on this word troubled again, because I, I want to make sure that we we've captured the, the intensity of what David is talking about here. We see this, this same word, not in Hebrew, but we see this word used similarly by Jesus as well. In John chapter 12, where he says, now my soul is troubled, meaning it's agitated, disturbed. There's, there's, there's very little to no composure inside, especially when they're faced with a difficult situation. And the idea here is that it's like this big vat of water or liquid and someone is just churning it and, and causing so much disturbance in it. That's the idea of troubling the water. And metaphorically, that's what Jesus is saying is going on in his soul. Now, Jesus didn't pray like David because we know that Jesus has no sin. But nonetheless, he said his soul is troubled as he was contemplating and moving towards his experience of the wrath of God. 
And he didn't, he didn't, he didn't say this like David to escape it. Jesus was praying and saying these things about how his soul was feeling so that others would know the depth of anguish that Jesus was going through even before he got to the cross and that depth of anguish and, and, and soul pain that he was feeling for us as he went to the cross to face the wrath of God. And so in verse six, we see David say, I am weary with my moaning and every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief and it grows weak because of all my foes. There's a lot of hyperbole here. In no way is this meant to be literal in the sense that David floods his bed with tears. And and in fact, a better translation of this is every night I cry so much, my bed floats. That's, that's a better translation of this verse from the Hebrew to English. Of course, it doesn't, it doesn't really carry with us the same the weight of it as I flood my bed with tears. Cause I think all of us at some point of our life have, have been in that state of mind where we've, we've just cried uncontrollably to the point where it feels like your whole pillow is completely soaked. And he says, I've drenched my couch with my weeping deep, deep sorrow, the deepest sense of grief. And it's interesting that David writes in here that every night I flood my bed with tears. And as I thought through this, I thought to myself, that's very true for a lot of us, isn't it? That when we're in grief and we're in pain, it's often at night that it racks us the most. It's often at night in our bed when everything's quiet that it, that it comes full force into our being. Because I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at putting up walls and holding back the tears, especially if I'm busy and I'm distracted. But when I'm alone on my bed, not because Marika's on the couch sleeping because we've had an argument, but what I mean is, is when I'm, when I'm laying there and all the lights are off, that's usually when the pain and the grief just wash over me to the point where I can't control it anymore. One person said that made the comment in the, in the insight that we as humans are at our weakest at night for we have to sleep. We have to sleep. Others try to escape and they try to avoid sleep because when we sleep, we place ourselves and get this, we place ourselves out of this idea of conscious, awake, attentive resistance. 
like I said, in the, in the daytime, it's easy, easier to keep back these emotions because we're distracted and we're focused on other things. But at nighttime, when we're in bed, all those things are gone except for it rattling around in our head. And it's at those moments that we are the weakest in holding the emotions back. We, we catch a flavor of this actually from Job chapter three, where he says, I am not at ease and I have no rest. Whether it's, whether it's day or night, especially night, I have no rest. Let's, um, let's, let's not take it too literally that one of David's eyes wastes away. Again, it's a hyperbole. If I was to put it in the common language of our day here today, David would essentially be saying, I bawled my eyes out. Have we ever done that before? I think so many times, right? I've bawled my eyes out. And that word grief in the Hebrew could also be translated rage. And we don't always cry in grief and pain, do we? I think sometimes we cry when we're angry and we're enraged by something. And I think the idea of crying so much that we bawl our eyes out because of the rage that we feel inside of us, because of the second half of this verse that David writes, it grows weak because of all my foes. <clears throat> we don't know when this psalm was written. We don't know what time period of, in David's life that this psalm particularly is anchored to. There's, there's some thoughts, but there isn't a real concrete anchor for us. But some have thought that because it's in the beginning of the Psalter following, obviously, Psalms 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, that maybe it's in this era of David running from Absalom. I don't, I don't want to say that it is, but if I want to speculate maybe just a tiny bit and say, if it is, remember that David is surrounded by thousands and thousands of soldiers mocking, ridiculing, coming up against their very king. Because remember that the, the, the armies that are encamped around him are his brothers, essentially. They're Israelites <clears throat> from different tribes. And here he's saying, my eye is wasting away because of the rage inside of me. And my eyes grow weak because of all my foes. In the sense, David's eyes are waiting for God to act in a period of time that just seems a little bit too long. And it, and it hooks us back to that question in verse three, where, where David says, how long, but you will Lord. And then there's this pause and he goes, how long? And the rage I think is pointed at David's enemies or enemies of God. We know that David, we, we know that David suffered a lot when it came to looking at those people who set themselves up as enemies 
of the righteous and enemies of God. There's no real easy dismissal from this situation that David is in. I know that as I, as I reflected on this Psalm over the last week, especially over the last four or five days, I really came to the understanding that this is one of those hard pieces of scripture that you just can't dance around. It's not easy to theologically dismiss and and put it off as well. You know, this was this was a particular time in a particular church in a particular era, and this is you know they were really surrounded by all these terrible things, and no wonder they fell into sin. This isn't as easy to categorize and dismiss as that. This is this is so this is so deep and personal for David which is one reason why I really, really love the Psalms and I'm growing to love the Psalms. Every one that we do, we're only six in. I, I'm, I'm excited, but I'm a little nervous as to what's going to happen when we get to Psalm hundred. <laughs> but there's no real easy dismissals for here. And I, and I wonder too, if it's helping me and I wonder if it helps us even pastorally where it's easy to dismiss others in their pain and in their suffering. And in, I would say maybe even in their depression that they're going through. And I know for me, it's making a huge impact on the way I think and even my, my heart and how empathetic I need to be and how much more caring I need to be towards those who are going through such terrible things. And they don't get removed simply by uttering some affirm, affirming uh, or affirmational rhetoric or sentence or these things don't just pass away because, you know, somebody comes along and says, Tim, don't forget you're a child of God and he loves you and he cares for you. Yeah, I get all that. But, but it, it's almost like you're throwing a ping pong ball on a rock at that moment. It's not really doing its work in that moment. And so I would, I would hope that somebody would say to me, Tim, remember to turn to Jesus. Remember to turn to Jesus. If we turn to Hebrews chapter four, Hebrews chapter four. Right after the writer of Hebrews is taken a great length to explain that Jesus is greater than Moses and how is there is this tremendous rest for the people of God, meaning there's tremendous salvation and rest for their soul in God. And the writer of Hebrews talks about, let us therefore strive into that rest. Picking up in verse 14, the writer of Hebrews says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And it's easy in these moments of pain and and despair and anxiety and depression, it's easy to get angry at God and sin in that anger. And this, this section here reminds me to turn to Jesus. The other, the other section of Hebrews that comes to mind that I want to share with you this evening is found in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 17. Here the writer of Hebrews is talking about Jesus saying, Therefore he, meaning Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Yes. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And that, and that, that rings so much clearer when we connect it to Psalm six. Because the suffering isn't necessarily because we are a Christian and we have foes and enemies who come against us because of our faith in Christ. It could be that we're suffering and in anxiety because we're struggling against our own temptations. And we're struggling against the sin that lives within us. I think that may be one of the things that David is wrestling with here in this psalm because there's no specific sin that he labels for us. It could be the very fact that David is wrestling with his very sin nature. And the fact that his foes are surrounding him isn't helping. In fact, we know historically that when David left Jerusalem to escape from Absalom, one of the very members of Meshivabeth's house, remember Meshivabeth was the last one of Saul's house that David saved, that David had mercy on. And so this member of that person whom David had saved and essentially adopted as his own son, this person is yelling at David that all of these things are happening to him because of all the bloodshed that David has brought upon himself, all the wars that he fought, all the people that he annihilated all the things that he had done in his life, that God was now finally paying him back for all those things. And Absalom was going to be the new king. All that weight and blame laid upon David as he's leaving Jerusalem, not in a profession as a king, but as a beggar, no shoes, very little clothes, his head covered and weeping as he's leaving. And so the admonition here for us is to turn to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith, our great high priest who was made just like us so that he could not only be our propitiation, but that someone that we could relate to and know that Jesus was human as well as God. And that those things that we're going through, whether they're emotional or physical, Jesus can relate to that because He's gone through those things as well. And he knows 
what it feels like to be in those moments. Then David turns in the psalm and he turns away from himself and he turns away from his pleas to God and he turns towards those who are his foes. He labels them the workers of evil. He names them as his enemies. He says, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. I don't know if you're into circling things in your Bible. I know I am. I circled that word heard because it's repeated here in verse 8 and verse 9. The Lord has heard the sound. The Lord has heard my plea. And then I also circled the word accepts. The Lord accepts my prayer. And this is a real, this is a real pivot in David's emotional state in this Psalm, because he's no longer looking at the pain and the suffering and, and the depths of despair, even depression that he's in, in contemplating his sin or his sin nature. But now he's, he's, he's come around to this, to the realization, this firm foundation of faith and confidence. In fact, I I wrote down here that the tone changes from one to seven and eight to 10. The tone changes to a faith and confidence, which overpowers the anguish and despair. Now, some have speculated that perhaps David was, was, was writing this or even singing this as he was going to the temple to worship. Remember that there was no temple. You didn't have a temple. It was still a tent. They called it a temple. So some have thought that he was, he was there worshiping the Lord and somebody said something to him, like maybe a priest walked up to him and said something like, have confidence in the Lord, David, you're his king. You're his anointed one. And some have tried to draw a parallel between that and what happened with Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, 17. And perhaps David, perhaps God answered David's prayer at this point, and David recognizes it, and he feels it in his soul. Of course, we, we, have, no, we have no concrete evidence to show us that that's true, but something must have happened in David's mind or in his physical life at that moment to cause him to turn. And somebody wrote this, and I, and I wrote it down as a quote, that where there is confidence in God, anxiety finds no seat. Where there is confidence in God, anxiety finds no seat. And we see that in, the, in this last three verses of this psalm. How gracious is God, our Savior. 
or here David says he's heard, not only heard once, but he's heard twice. And not only heard, but that he's accepted. And I wonder what, what depth of strength that brought to David in this moment. David, the weary king, the battle-scarred king. And it's such a testimony to us today that in our battles, we're going to, we're going to get wounded. In our battles, we will get tired. In our battles, we will be anxious. And yet there will come a moment where God hears the sound of your weeping and he hears your plea and he accepts your prayer and it fills you with confidence and power. Before I show you the, the real cool thing about the end of this Psalm with the rest of it, I want to finish with Psalm 10 or sorry, uh, verse 10, where he says, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame. What David is doing here is he's, he's spinning the words in the other direction. Now you noticed he's used the word greatly troubled in verse 10. It's the same word grouping that he used in verse three. So he's saying it essentially, I was here, but now that the Lord has heard me and has accepted my prayer, now they will feel what I felt. They will shake in their innermost being. They will have anxiety that rocks their very soul because God is alive and he has heard my prayer and he has accepted it. My enemies shall be ashamed. They shall be made to feel worthless. And they shall turn back, meaning they'll turn the other way and, 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 and move away. And in that turning back and, and moving away, there's shame and worthlessness that they will feel in that. A retreat. They will have to retreat from where they are. They will have to go back without victory. That's what David is really communicating to us here. The last, the last thing that I want to I point out to us that I, I found to be really super amazing is this, is this reverse connection that we see in verses 8, 9, and 10, where in verse 8, David says, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Well, essentially, that's what's being described for us in verses 6 to, se six to 7. David weeping. The Lord heard me when I was floating my bed with my tears. And then the next sentence, he says, the Lord has heard my plea. And look at verses 4 to 5. That's David's plea to God. And then when he says, the Lord accepts my prayer, that's that verses one to three, where David prays to God to not rebuke him in his anger or discipline him in his wrath. And that's Psalm six. It's a beautiful Psalm. In some ways, it's a painful Psalm. Because I think if we took the time to just sit in it and, and essentially crockpot ourselves in it, 
we too would be able to identify with some of the things that David is saying here, not just in the in the despair and the anxiety and the depression and the crying and the weeping over our sin, but also in the victory that we would feel because God has heard our, our crying and our prayers and he accepts them. Mm-hmm.